It was the end of the Concorde recently. Now they're taking away the 747. That's all 747. You heard that right. The final Boeing 747 has left the assembly line. It was hugely popular in the 90s, credited with turning from elite to mass market. Well, it's happened. Very soon, we have someone who went upstairs on the upper deck and met someone extremely famous. Ex- what, extremely famous. With us now, though, is Dan Lake. He's the editor of Travel Weekly Australia and is a self-described total plane geek. Kia ora, Dan. How's it going? I'm going to do my best to be just as entertaining as a surfing dog today. <laughs> Thank you. You, you, you. you can be whoever you want to be on the show, Dan. Have, have, have you ever been on a 747? Yes, numerous times. I was actually lucky enough to be on the last Air New Zealand 747 flight from San Francisco to Auckland. That would have been, oh, coming up maybe eight or nine years ago now. So that's how long it's been since Air New Zealand have had the 747. My first, though, would have been when I was four. Um, And back then, that was Auckland to London. You had to stop in Perth, Mumbai, Frankfurt, and then you get to London. You so see, I'm, I'm jealous. Uh, you know, this, this is one of my bucket lists, you know. Bucket list included going to the Luge in Rotorua, going to the Hamilton Gardens, and um, going in a 747. Two of those I've done. How did you get to be on, <laughs> how did you get to be on a 747? When you were four. Well, they used to, they were, well, that was pretty much what everyone flew, and that's oh. kind of what's different now, is that sometimes it doesn't feel like you're travelling unless you're on a 747, but they're just not common anymore. Like they're saying in New Zealand, haven't had one for nearly a decade. Same with Qantas, they've retired all of theirs. So it's back then, though, they were a dime a dozen. Everyone was using them. Oh, okay. David, what about you? Yeah, I flew one from um, uh, Sydney to LA. And uh, I got taken up the top deck because I was an adorable wee seven-year-old. And so they used to take us on a little tour. And so I got to see it. And I mean... It's it's a plane. It's a big plane. I mean, maybe maybe Topol could upgrade its McDonald's and get a get it's a seven four seven. Wow! But it's a, I don't. I'm not I'm more not, than just a plane. Yeah, you is, see, Dan, that's, he he's politicising air travel now. <laughs> this is, is what David is. does. You keep using that word, and I don't know if you know what it actually means, Wallace. Oh, that's a low blow. I tell you something. My father always said, when you get on a plane, Cindy, try to turn left. And I never knew what he was talking about. <laughs> and I think the 747 that he was saying, when you get on your plane, go left, because that is business class, first class, and upstairs. Right. When you go right, is that right, Dan? That's right, yeah. yeah. So you turn left, you're in the business class, you're in the, um, the fancy end of the plane, turn right, and you're down there in economy. But even with... He didn't tell me you had to pay to turn left. first came in, you, with Pan Am... Um, you know, that was when it was luxury. You know, there were lounges with singers and dancers. And even in economy, you started getting served proper, decent meals. So it became fancy for everyone, but it was also affordable for everyone because yep. you could shove 400 people on the plane. Well, we have a Pan Am, quite an extraordinary story right now, Dan. So I don't, you're in Australia, aren't you? Maybe you might or might not be listening. Uh, hold the, have a listen to this. Dan, good to have you on. Uh, with us now is Anthony. Kia ora, Anthony. Kia ora, um, panel. Okay, so Hi. here you are. You're in a Pan Am 747 first-class dining room upstairs. Uh, you're on the way to Honolulu, is that right? No, uh, basically out of New York, going to Los Angeles. 
And I used to travel quite a lot in the 1970s and 80s on Pan Am. And in the 70s, they did have a dining room upstairs. And uh, they used to allocate you to guests. So you'd go up there, you'd have cocktails standing around, then go to your uh, little name card on the table. And you never knew who you were sitting with, but they were always interesting people. And on one occasion, uh, it was Warren Beatty and uh, uh, his uh, daughter, actually, um, and his agent on the other side of the the table. And it was very good. You'd leave uh, New York as you'd take off flying over New Jersey. You'd go upstairs if you wished to, and you'd have dinner, and you'd literally be there till top of the set. Oh, That's when the uh, so so here you are. Here you are. It's the seventies. You're in a Pan Am seven four seven, and you're in the upper deck dining with Warren Beatty. Yes, yeah, that was a lot of other interesting people too. But uh, he was very pleasant. He was good company. That's, and you, that's and phenomenal. David, the, the, the David? Few hours just passed by. Last time I was on, we talked about famous people that people had met, and it was very depressing because people thought that Maggie Barry was the height of celebrity. But to actually be dining with Warren Beatty, that's that's cool. Uh, was he was he was he married to Annette Bening then? Uh, no, he didn't have his wife there. He had um, a bodyguard who sat on the other side of the aisle. Uh, he had his agent, who was a rather lovely woman, and he had his daughter. Incredible. Uh, who was. Probably about nineteen twenty. I hope you've dined and, out uh, on this they, story so many times. <laughs> uh, well, the sad part was when I came home, I said to my wife, guess who I dined with last night? And finally she gave up and I said, Warren Peters, she said, never heard of him. Oh. <laughs> no, can't be. And can you remember the cocktail that you had, just as we've been having a few cocktails at home, cele- yes, celebratory? It would have you... been a Bloody Mary. Okay, not a martini. No, definitely at Buddy Mary. There was a cocktail bar and uh, sort of lounge on uh, United 747 oh. from Chicago to Honolulu. Oh, Anthony. And, you, that, you... and that was the one that was, uh, it was in uh, orange leather. It was very, oh, very... Uh, Anthony, uh, Anthony, the, the panel now has a new travel correspondent where we regale the trips of the 1970s. Are you up for it? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, into the 1970s. Uh, Continental also had a flying pub on something. You know what? Stop right there. We might get you back next week for another travel story. That's Anthony. Um, Keep uh, keep, uh, Anthony's number, Uh, Ayana. Yeah, we're going to get him back to talk about Anthony is now uh, my surfing dog. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Talk about this um, orange leather. Mind you, some some of those travel stories perhaps shouldn't be repeated. No, they, those, are the ones, those are the ones that absolutely yeah. should yes. be repeated. Exactly. Yes, yeah. on national radio. Now, <laughs> um, you are on the panel. We have Cindy Michener, recruitment executive. We have David Cormack from uh, uh, Draper Cormack Group. And attention has turned to climate adaptation in the wake of these Auckland floods. But this is not just an Auckland issue. Recall Nelson hammered last year with a unique rain event, Mai Tai River flowing into much of the city, terrible floods in Westport, February of last year, and the floods post-cyclone Hau Tarawhiti. And then there were the floods inundating South Dunedin some years back. So what can we learn with regard to our infrastructure, Auckland and other centres? To discuss, we have Dr Sebastian Gerdeke, co-director of the Climate and Energy Finance Group, at the Otago Business School at uh, Otago University, Dunedin. Dr. Gareth, kia ora. 
Can you hear us? Oh, you are a long way away, so we might just get that line a little bit clearer. Um, and we are talking about um, how our cities uh, cope. Nonetheless, before we get to Sebastian on a clear line, that was one of the, that was one of the things that I think that people are discussing in the office now, just how fast and furious uh, that water came up on Friday, from say fourth or five pm to about six thirty. Rising, extraordinary. I mean, I it was it was, it was it was crazy. And and what I'm really interested in is why do we keep building? Like I live in Caracas. You go off the motorway, and there are now six or seven cleared areas where they're building a whole lot more houses with one road, okay, in and out, and. No more services going to be provided. That's why? A very good point. Why don't they make developers responsible to a certain level for upgrading infrastructure to cope with the point. new people? It's almost as if we should be focusing on density where those services already exist, yeah, instead of complaining not, about ruining views in Ponsonby. Yeah, up not. I mean, honestly, you know, the the Karaka, it that has changed so much from when we moved there 13 years ago to now. Well, I have to drive 10 okay. minutes. Okay, with us now we have Dr. Gerica. Welcome to the program. Kia ora. Thank you for having me. I hope you can hear me this time. No, loud and clear, Sebastian. And, and look, time is against us in a way, isn't it? Because these events are occurring quite regularly. I mean, I mentioned a list uh, just earlier of some of the floods we've had. Yeah, so it's you know there was an IPCC report recently that estimated for New Zealand that there's 20,000 square kilometres or you know 650, uh, 75,000 people or 411,000 buildings with a value of about 130 billion dollars um, at flood risk in the in the future to come. So these events are only going to you know according to all the models only going to increase in uh, frequency and in how severe they are. And that's all due to the, the increased amount of um, moisture in the air from the heat. And so then when a storm that usually wouldn't be so bad rolls through, you actually get a lot more rain than you would have in the past. You point out that an infrastructure investment deficit uh, is in play here. Is that a key starting point? Yeah, I would say so. It's definitely part of the picture. right? And the, I think the Treasury last year estimated that it was about, I think, $80 billion that the spending shortfall over the last, I think, around 30 years was in New Zealand. And that doesn't even include the shortfall in investment and housing. Um, and so we have this massive infrastructure deficit, and the infrastructure commission is trying to work on that now. But really, we have this sort of opportunity that if we build this infrastructure we need anyway, that we really need to consider not only how we affect the climate, so making sure we build in a green way and we don't contribute to the problem, but actually we build something that's a bit more resilient, right? right. Um, so we can absorb that water, for example. So um, the process for this, does it mean our building consents have to change and have a lot more rigorous requirements? I mean, one of the big issues that everyone's been jawing on about is it takes too long to get all your building consents and therefore that's why it's slowing everything down. But should we actually be being more rigorous in terms of understanding all these natural perils? 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a part of the element. So I was at an infrastructure conference with uh, a lot of people from the in- infrastructure, I think it was at the council. Um, but they, uh, you know, there's a there's multiple things going on. So one thing is obviously to reform the Resource Management Act. So that's mm-hmm. how we um, consent land uses and other underground things like that. And then the other part is that they're going to bring in, um, hopefully, I haven't looked at it in detail, a lot more considerations for, the, again, the effect on climate change. So it's sort of our fighting against climate change, our mitigation, and then also adaptation, right? So that we're not building in places where we have flood risk. Um, but it's a very complicated process where consents certainly play a part um, in that strategy. David? Oh, I mean... It's rad, eh, that all of the experts that have been saying this for 40 years have turned out to be accurate, and now we're just staring down the barrel of a deteriorating environment. And But to the infrastructure deficit, I mean, isn't that kind of true of everywhere? Like, we've just, since, you know, the 80s when we started introducing lower taxation and the likes, we've just seen underinvestment by states all over the world. Yeah, um... I'm not so sure about all over the world, but definitely in a lot of places, right, and a lot of, um, I guess, economies that operate like ours. But then you can also see some countries like, for example, I'd imagine Finland, Norway, Germany, those types of countries. So a lot of European countries actually have invested in their infrastructure and are therefore, um, you know, have a lot more preparedness okay. in this space, or trying to be anyway. I want to take it away from um, Auckland a little bit, Sebastian, because there, there are some who say, well, this has been a week of Auckland, but I'm just, I mean, if you look at Nelson, for example, right, I mean, it was an extraordinary flood there where the Mitre River, possibly for the first time in history, broke the banks to go into the inner city of the wood area. I mean, it was quite something. And at the end of it, they faced a $60 million repair bill on top of the $6 million already spent on the emergency response. I mean, this is a city of 50,000. They can't pay for it. You know, mm. where's the preparedness in that? I mean, who pays? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so who pays when something bad happens uh, is usually the insurance companies, but what if they can't pay out like what, what, uh, with what we saw in the Christchurch earthquake at times? Um, then the government has to step in, right? So that's I vote problem. fossil then, fuel companies. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um, but for future infrastructure projects, there's a lot of talk at the moment about um, industry and government partnering to finance and then to have what they call user pay. So if there's a piece of infrastructure that benefits a certain region of landowners or um, businesses, then those um, businesses or landowners end up paying uh, a levy for, that would then pay back for their capital expenditure over time. Is maybe one of the issues that the responsibility for infrastructure, inverted commas, is so devolved? There's multiple departments, multiple businesses, you know, multiple decision making. Where, you know, would it be better off if there was a a more centralised or a, you know, the buck stops here sort of, um, you know, department or, or somebody that was able to really look strategically at the big picture instead of all the little wee pieces. Yeah, I think there's a there's always trade-offs in that, right? So if you have more decentralised local decision-making, then it might be more applicable and actually really hit the nail on the head, but that's not really what we've seen with um, water infrastructure, for example. 
So then maybe centralisation is a way to, to fix the current problems and, you know, in my opinion, eventually give that control back to the, the local authorities. Um, yeah. Needless to say, uh, Sebastian, the time is now to start discussing and maybe, I mean, many councils now have climate adaptation plans, including Auckland. Uh, time to get that report out of the drawer and uh, start acting? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we're all talking about it. Um, a lot of it's still around the mitigation side of things when it comes to really investing money, um, but adaptation is a huge piece. And you mentioned Nelson earlier. I think they're still planning uh, to build a library and actually a flood risk zone. So, That's right. You know, if you live in Nelson, talk to your councillors. It's not a great idea. Um, things like that where plans were, you know, created a while ago and now we're kind of invested in pushing those plans through even though we could still change what we're doing. And a very flash um, library as well. But I think that because yeah. we had uh, me and Nick Smith on, I'm, it, it could be... not Correct me on this, but it may be on hold. Anyway, uh, Dr. Geroka Kiora, thank you for your time. Uh, a lot of response uh, about that. Also, a huge response regarding 747s and uh, a rare piece of positive feedback about David Cormack. <laughs> um, he is such a voice of reason. I love his straight shooting. Uh, please get him on uh, more often. Uh, well, we'll have a think about that. <laughs> um, good afternoon. The Kapiti Coast District Council is enthusiastically consenting housing on flood ponding areas on the Kapiti Coast is Terry's... Um, uh, viewpoint uh, we'll text here. Finally, on the panel, we heard earlier from engineer and geologist Martin Brook, uh, trees help stop landslides in flooding, but uh, there are uh, times where they can topple over due to wind. But anyway, according to the Tree Council, Auckland loses around a 1,000 trees a week. We have very low canopy coverage around 18%, with the um, recommended being 40%. That is the average. They Sorry, say, 18% of what? Uh, 18% canopy coverage. That's the uh, Like of the entire city? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Compared to, I think, Christchurch has 30% by memory, and I think Wellington has uh, a bit less than that, I think 23%. Anyway, they say our urban trees need protecting, especially since they lost blanket protection under the RMA in 2015. So to discuss is Dr. Miles Barton, Secretary of the Tree Council and Coordinator for Cody Rescue. Dr. Barton, kia ora. Kia ora. So, very, very good. Uh, explain to us, because I know that um, in terms of this notion of spongy cities, tree canopy has been an issue. They're saying, by and large, it is far better to have uh, that courage. How can trees help in heavy rainfall events? Uh, well, canopies, canopy, tree coverage canopy um, intercepts between 18 and 60% of the rainfall in an individual storm. That means that none of that water reaches the ground. Um, so if you've got a short storm, then trees, a tree canopy um, coverage that's 30% or more can make a massive difference in a, in a city. Um, and during a storm event that's similar to the one that Auckland experienced um, last Friday of, say, 250 to 500 millimetres of rainfall, Auckland had, I think, 249 last Friday, um, a mature tree, one tree, can store up to 400 litres of water. Um, so if you multiply that by the number of trees that we've lost, conservatively, a 1,000 a week um, over the last eight years, um, that's about half a million trees. 
and that works out at about 166 million litres of extra water that's right. hitting our stormwater system um, and needing to go into a pipe. And okay. guess what? The pipes aren't big enough. Yeah. What just, can, I just, can I just come back and say, what about those who live in Titirangi who might say, well, actually, we're surrounded by trees? Yeah, that's right. We are surrounded by trees. And if we hadn't have had the trees in Titirangi, Titirangi would be flat by now. I mean, I live here. Um, and I've seen what's happened, and okay. the, spe- the sl- steepness of the slopes and the fact that it is clay in Tidarangi means that if we didn't have the tree coverage that we did, you wouldn't be able to sustain any of the development and the buildings that are here because all of them would have ended up on the beach or in the road. So the fact that we have really good tree coverage in Tidarangi has actually enabled that development to be maintained on really, really steep slopes that you just couldn't right. have if they, would, if they were not held up by the Cindy. tree. So is, is it all good, that, Dr Burton, though? Is there not some downside in terms of the leaves and drain blockages and actually adding to the problem? Because quite often the rain is combined with severe wind and the damage from you know, the, the, the falling trees, the branches Mouse. and the leaves. Well, that's just a maintenance issue. And, and um, deciduous trees only leave their leaves once a year in autumn. So if you manage to go out and clear your drains, then you're not going to have a problem for the rest of the year. Native trees are, keep their leaves all year round. So there isn't an issue with leaves when you've got native trees. Well, there is an issue with leaves when there's an enormous amount of wind. It's not just leaves. There's branches, etc. I mean, I live up a big tree-lined driveway, and, I, you know, after every weather event, I have to get out and clear the driveway. I reckon well, uh, the benefits probably that. outweigh the negatives here, Cindy. Like, to be honest... Yeah, there's... but you would. Well, yeah, well, can, can, yeah can, I mean... Can you buy a rake? Can we get you a rake? Yeah, no, like, it'd have to be a very big rake. I can get you a rake and a chainsaw. I think, um, I think what would you prefer? Would you prefer all the water coming through your house or a slip on your drive-by, or would you, or would you prefer having to go out with a rake every now and then? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I understand that, but I just remember when um, Queen Street was planted with trees, right? Remember that? And they had to pull them all up because of the damage that it was doing. We're almost there. I, the number of mouths is that you say Auckland, Tamika Makoto needs a lot more tree coverage. We're low on canopy coverage. It, does. it doesn't. And the problem is that the, that the Natural and Built Environment Act um, does not protect trees. All right. So what we want is for um, everyone to go to our stopthetop.co.nz website. Okay. Make a submission to the government that tree protection is... We'll do it tomorrow in our Friday Melbourne. Kia ora, thank you for your time. Checkpoint is next. I'm Wallace Chapman. See you tomorrow.